The Productive Woman, Episode 200. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast dedicated to productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Thank you so much for joining me. I am just amazed and excited to be here for episode 200. So this episode is the promised Ask Me Anything episode. I invited you to send questions, and you did, and I'm going to be doing my best to answer them. You'll find more information and links in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 200. This episode is brought to you by Text Expander and Babbel. Babbel is a new sponsor that is a service that will help you learn a new language. Visit babbel.com, that's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, and use offer code TPW for 50% off your first three months of Babbel's service. And I'll tell you a little more about them later on in this episode. Right now, though, I want to share with you about Text Expander. This is the software that helps you communicate smarter. I've talked about Text Expander long before they started sponsoring the show because I've been using it for years. It allows you to create what they call snippets out of things that you send or type repeatedly. So anything that might be something you type often, directions to your home or your office, mailing addresses, meeting agendas, website URLs. If you're in a sales business, if there are common inquiries from your customers you that you have to answer the same way many times, you can type up a type it up once, create a, a, a snippet, an abbreviation of it. And from then on, you just type the little short snippet and it pops, it expands it into the full response and sends it off for you quickly. Uh, any number of things that you can use Text Expander for. I use it many times a day. You can summon your snippets in any app on the Mac, the iPad, the iPhone. And in recent years, they they added Windows-based computers to their arsenal and any number of ways to use your snippet. Share your snippets with your team if you're in a business so you can keep them up to date together uh, and make sure that you're giving consistent answers to your customers or clients. That is the power and the magic of snippets and just one example of what you can do to communicate smarter with Text Expander. Check out their blog at textexpander.com to find out find more tips and techniques for making good use of Text Expander's powerful features. I've been using it for years. I get lots of inquiries. I think I've mentioned this before from people who'd like to be guests on the show. I have a reply that I send and I instead of retyping it over and over each time I get an inquiry, I can type just a few characters, it expands it into the email and then it's uh, then I send it and off it goes. And it's not just an email that you can use Text Expander. Basically any app on your computer you can use it. I use it in Word all the time for document components for my law practice, for instance. So 
because it's web-based, you can use it on all your devices and your snippets are synced across all those devices. So they're always available to help you communicate more effectively and more efficiently. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20% off your first year of Text Expander and be sure to choose the productive woman from their How Did You Hear About Us drop-down list so they know that I sent you. All right, let's get it right into our episode today, the 200th episode. I'm, I am almost speechless, but I shouldn't be speechless because I'm here to, to talk with you. All I can say is, wow, I am so amazed that I've reached this 200th episode. I'm so grateful to you for listening. For those of you who've written to me or commented in the Facebook group or who've told your friends about the Productive Woman podcast, thank you for the kind words that you've sent me about the show. You don't know how encouraging it is to me to hear from you, to know that what I'm doing here sitting in a room by myself is actually helpful to you, encouraging to you in some way. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do this. And as you know, if you've been listening for a while, as we were approaching this milestone, I wanted to come up with some way to thank you to kind of celebrate. There are a number of things we're doing. We're doing a giveaway. I think as this episode comes out, it's actually the last day to enter. So hopefully you've done that by now. Uh, but I also wanted to do other things to to thank you for being part of this community and part of my life. And so I decided I'd do an Ask Me Anything episode where you were invited to send your questions about anything you wanted to ask me, and I would do my best to answer them. And so that's what I'm going to do. You sent me a bunch of them. This may be a little bit longer than usual episode. Uh, And a lot of these answers, I mean, honestly, some of your questions could have been a whole episode by themselves and probably will be at some point. So I'm going to try to give kind of quick, concise answers to these questions. I think, I don't know, we've got maybe 20 or so questions and um, and I may expand on them more in later episodes. So let's start out with a question from Lisa. Lisa left a voice message with her question. And so let's hear what her question is, and then I'll give you my answer. This is Lisa. Hi, Laura. This is Lisa from New Jersey. I wanted to say congratulations on 200 episodes And I wanted to give you a question for your Ask Me Anything episode. Reflecting on your many years of business and personal experience as a successful and productive businesswoman, can you share with us one or two things that you've learned that you wish you'd known earlier in your life, such as something or things you could have told yourself 10, 15, or 20 years ago that might have saved you some time, anguish, pain, or just generally helped you achieve your goals or dreams with more ease? Thank you. What a great question. I mean, what things that I wish I had known earlier in my life. Um, I had to really think about this one. This was, and you know, this was the first question that came in, the one from Lisa. And I really had to think about it. And there are a lot of things that I could say. A lot of the things that I talk about in the podcast, honestly, are those sorts of things, things I wish that I had learned 10 or 15 or 20 years ago that would have helped me achieve what I wanted to achieve in life. But I think the quick 
the quick answer to this, the, the, the things that came to mind as I was trying to think of it, how to answer Lisa's question, is the f- first thing that I wish I had known when I was younger is that nobody but me is responsible for my happiness, my confidence, my sense of worth and capability, or my feelings of any kind. I, when I was younger, always looked outside myself for what would make me happy, for what would make me feel loved, for what would make me feel competent and confident in my ability. And it's only been in the last few years that I've come to learn that that none of that can come from outside me. Uh, it I'm responsible for how I feel and I decide how I feel by what I choose to think about. And I talked about this a little bit on episode 199 on, you know, when we were talking about what it takes to make or what I think about uh, the meaning of a life that matters. And learning that I can control or manage my feelings by managing my mind, managing what I think about has been a game changer for me. And I have mentioned before the podcast, the Life Coach School podcast hosted by Brooke Castillo. I encourage you to check that out for more about that. So that's one of them. Nobody but me is responsible for that. Mike cannot make me happy. Uh, I, no matter what he does, and he's a, he's a good husband and he loves me and he, he's supportive and encouraging, but he can't get inside my mind and l- make me feel loved and confident and competent. I, that, I got to do that work myself. Second thing I wish I had learned when I was much younger is that it is better to try and fail than to live with the regret of not having tried. There are so many things that I wanted to do when I was younger and I was too chicken to try because I was terrified of failing and particularly terrified of failing in front of other people, letting other people see me do something badly. And so I held back and didn't do things just out of that fear of failure. And I I just have come to believe that it's better just to give it a shot even if you're going to fall on your face, because most of the time it's not going to be life-threatening, but that it's still better to have given it a shot, even if you fail, than to live with the regret of never having tried and never know if you could have done it if you'd given it that shot. And the other thing that I sort of knew when I was younger, but uh, I don't think I knew it to, to my core with the depth that I know it now, is that nothing matters more than the relationships in your life. There are, uh, this kind of ties to the first one, that there are things that I thought would make a huge difference in my life if I could accomplish A, B, or C. And uh, I went out trying to do those things, and, and I don't regret having tried to do those things, but they didn't give the satisfaction. They didn't give me the feeling of completeness that I thought they would. And I've realized, I've come to realize as I've gotten older that the most important thing in my life is not how much money I make or the house I live in or the awards on my wall, but it's the people in my life, uh, my husband, my children, 
the my friends, my extended family, my my colleagues that I work with, the listeners. The, it's the people that are that make the hugest difference in the quality of the life that I live. So I hope that helps, Lisa. That's that's those are the things I wish I had learned many years ago. Okay, so next question is from Anne Marie in Australia. And she asks, how did you get started with studying for your new career in the midst of raising kids, taking care of the needs of your family and homeschooling? Did you schedule specific time to study? Did you have help from your husband? Um, she says, I love what you've been able to achieve in a happy marriage, a close family or career, and I'd love to be able to do the same. She homeschools. She has a bunch of kids and she has a passion for natural health and healing and would love to be able to help other moms with their kids' health. Uh, she had a degree in nutrition that she got before she got married, and she keeps wondering if she should get started doing that. Great question, Anne-Marie. So how did I get started? When I went back to college to finish my undergraduate degree, we had four kids. I got pregnant with our fifth child, uh, who was born right after finals of my junior year. And I was homeschooling the two older kids during that period of time. So I had started college many years before, did the first couple of years of college, and then there was a 10-year gap where I, where I was staying home, taking care of my kids, working, had part-time jobs and did different things over the course of those years, but mostly raising our kids. And so when I went back to college, I was uh, in my early 30s and had my kids. When we left for law school, when we moved from Omaha to New York for me to start law school, our youngest child was a year old, and I continued to homeschool the two oldest during my first year of, of law school. But we had been doing it, it, that is homeschooling, for nearly 10 years by then, so we had a routine down and it worked pretty well, so it didn't take all of my time to do that. When I was in law school, I started law school when I was 35, and my oldest two kids were in high school and junior high age. Uh, the next two were elementary school age, and the youngest was a toddler. So how was I able to do that? How was I able to go to law school, which is a notoriously difficult ed educational program, while raising kids and homeschooling for the first year and all of those sorts of things. The fact is my older kids were able to help a lot. And frankly, Mike just stepped up and took over a lot of the things that I had done for the years before that. He took over a lot of the cooking during the week, did a lot of the grocery shopping. Um, we all helped with cleaning the house. I generally did the laundry, but we we worked together as a team. And I had done that on purpose as my kids were growing up. I, you know, we, we were a team, we were a family, everybody helped, even little kids can help do little things, you know, they can, they can uh, carry, you know, carry the silverware to the table when you're setting the table, or they can help bring laundry to, to you or whatever. But everybody in the family had a part to play. And that's a big part of why I was able to do that. I definitely set up routines for studying. Law school requires a lot of studying. I had a space in the house set aside for that. I had a desk in a, in a room kind of off uh, where it could be quiet and I could focus when I could go in there to study. And I had certain times of day 
when I would study, I tried to get up and do things in the morning before the kids got up and things like that. I also set realistic expectations for things during that period of my life. Uh, You know, the house was not immaculate. We did the minimum during the week necessary to keep it generally pretty tidy and clean enough to be healthy. And deeper cleaning was deferred to during school breaks. I, I didn't spend every minute cleaning house. You can't do everything. That's I think that's such an important thing to remember. We can't do everything all the time. So Anne-Marie, if you have as many children as you have mentioned in your in your email to me, they are of an age that they can help. And I would encourage you to have them help if you are wanting to start doing certain things, uh, whether it's to launch a, a coaching business or something, using your nutrition degree and the things you've learned about natural health and healing, get the family together and talk about it. When we decided to leave Omaha and go to New York for me to go to law school, that was a family, there were family conversations about what that was going to mean. And having everybody on board made a huge difference. Hope that helps. It's probably something that we could talk about on another episode in more depth about how to set up you know, get started on a side gig um, and how to make that work when you've got a family and those sorts of things. Uh, The next question is from Corrine, and she also sent in a voice message that uh, with her question. So let's listen to what Corrine asked. Hi, Laura. This is Corrine from Michigan. And my basic question has to do with kind of your life timeline. How long did it take you to get your law degree? How long were you a full-time lawyer? And then how long did you have both your productive woman side gig while being a full-time lawyer before moving back to the farmhouse and doing both of them part-time? So this question's all about you. Thanks. So Corrine's question uh, was a great one about my legal career again. So it kind of follows on some of the things that Anne-Marie asked. Uh, A law degree in the United States takes three years to get. So you, and that's after college. So you have four years of college at least, and then a three-year law degree. And usually law students will work for a law firm during the summer between their second and third year. Now, I had to finish, as I mentioned before, my undergraduate degree before starting law school because I had taken those years off to raise to start our family. And so from the time I decided to go back to school until I graduated from law school and start practicing law uh, was about five years. I had, you asked how long I'd been practicing law before I added the productive woman stuff. I'd been practicing law about 16 years, I think, when I decided to launch the podcast. And the reason I did it was, you know, I had kind of settled into my practice. I was very busy, but law practice can be all consuming. And there are a lot of careers that are like that. Um, but for me, it, it the practice of law very much was that way. I was at a large law firm, had a lot of uh, client work to do and was very busy. But I wanted something to do that wasn't related to the practice of law. 
I've always been kind of a productivity nerd. I love helping women with productivity things. And so it just was kind of a natural fit during that period when I discovered podcasts and thought, this is something I could do that I could kind of fit in on the weekends or the evenings that's not related directly to practicing law, but would allow me to maybe help some other people and use the things that I've learned over the years. So I launched it after about 16 years. I kept working at an outside law firm office full-time for the first three years of The Productive Woman. And during that time, we've t- I've mentioned this, uh, if you've listened to previous episodes, I've mentioned this before. During that period of time, those three years, we actually had an apartment in town near my office. Our home is about 55 miles from where my office was. And so for the seven years prior to that, I had been commuting 55 miles each way every day. And so during that period of time when I launched the podcast, we got this apartment and I stayed there during the week. And that's where I did the podcasting from, where I facilitated the masterminds when those launched. Now, last year, I changed law firms, changed my practice to work almost exclusively from home. So I don't have the commute anymore. I've somewhat reduced my hours, but I still spend most of my day during the week in my home office working on legal stuff and trying to fit in some of the podcast stuff and some mastermind stuff and the coaching in in between working on my client stuff. So I hope that answers your question, Corrine. If it doesn't, send me an email. I'll I'll, uh, I'll elaborate. Next question comes from Shaz, also in Australia. And she says, my question relates to success and happiness. Over the past 12 months, I've been on a personal journey to redefine success for myself. I find it interesting that when I ask most people, Or when asked, most people define success as being happy. But when I challenge further, they can't tell me what happy looks like. So my two-part question for you is, what is your personal definition of success? And what does happy look like to you? Um, And so uh, she loves the show. She says some other neat neat things. Uh, Boy, Shaz, this, this is a challenge, okay? Uh, I had to really think about this for quite a while and because I don't know that I have a definition. I found a definition in an article uh, called 37 Lessons to Help You Live a Life That Matters. And um, I kind of like their definition, which is, and I'm quoting here, and I'll put a link in the show notes for this, but the 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 article says the real definition of success is a life and work that bring personal fulfillment and lasting relationships and makes a difference in the world in which they live. And I would say that's my definition of success. It's not it's not measured by how much money I make or how high on the food chain I I rise in my chosen career. To me, when I get to the end of my life, I will feel that I've been successful if people think well of me, you know, if people think that I was a person of integrity, that I was a kind person, that I could be trusted. Success for me definitely has a component of how well my children turn out. My kids are all adults now. My youngest is 24. And... I feel that I'm successful 
because they still like each other. I made a lot of mistakes as a parent, I think, when they were growing up, but they still enjoy each other's company and they still like us. They still want to come around and spend time with us. And that, to me, is the biggest sign of success for my life. And I, I know that's probably not a very good answer, Shaz. I'm, I'm guessing that's not what you, um, what you're looking for, but it's the best I can come up with that I, I will have been successful in my life. If the relationships that matter to me have endured and I have been able to make a positive difference in the lives of the people I come in contact with. And as far as what happy looks like, I think it's, um, I don't I don't have an answer. I don't know what happy I don't think happy means that you are just laughing and smiling all the time. I think my definition of happy probably falls more on what you would think of as as satisfied and content. And I am happy when I feel like I am doing what I need to be doing that I'm you know, doing my job well as a lawyer, I am happy when I feel like I am doing kind things for the people in my life, whether it's the people who live in my house or, um, you know, you, the people who listen to the show. Happiness, I, I just don't have, I don't, know that I have. It's one of those things that you feel like you, you know it when you see it, but I don't know how to define it. I would love to know what you, how you define happiness, Shaz. Um, so shoot me an email or share something in the Facebook group about what happy looks like to you. I mean, I'm happy when I get to stay home and I don't have a bunch of work to do and I can just relax and hang out with my family and um, you know, read a good book or watch a movie on TV. Those kinds of things make me happy. And I got to spend this weekend with a couple of my kids and their kids, including the new grandson. And I'm very, very happy. So I don't know how to define happiness, but I can tell you those are the kinds of things that make me happy. I hope that helps, Shaz. Sorry for not being more articulate and eloquent about that. Uh, next questions came from Candace, and she actually had two questions. Her first question has to do with the costs involved in putting out a podcast, uh, both the initial costs and the ongoing costs. So, Candace, there are there are basic, there's a broad spectrum of what the costs of podcasting might be. There are some startup costs because you need a way to record yourself and get it up into out into the world for other people to listen to it. And you can spend hundreds, even thousands of dollars getting the equipment to do that and people to help you do it, but you don't have to. It can be done with a simple microphone and the recording app on your computer. So for instance, if you have a Mac computer, you can record into GarageBand, which is a, an application that comes installed on all Macs. You can use the built-in microphone to record, but it won't have the greatest audio quality. Uh, you can spend lots of money on microphones. I happen to have a, a pretty nice recording microphone, but that's because my husband's a musician and he already owned this for other purposes and I just sort of confiscated it. A lot of podcasters start out with a microphone called the ATR2100, and you can get that for 
generally around $50 on Amazon. I actually was looking on Amazon for something else uh, yesterday, and I saw they had it for about $40. That's $40 U.S., and it's a good microphone. I've used it to record some of my episodes. Lots of podcasters use it. So it's a great place to start. And it's one that you can plug into your computer. It's a, you know, you can use it via USB. So um, not a ton of costs necessary there. And I I don't know what there, there's probably a an app you can use on a Windows-based computer that you can record on. You don't have to spend a ton of money to do that. Uh, there is no cost. You asked about the cost to get it into iTunes. There's no cost to do that. You just need to meet their requirements, which I will put a link in the show notes, both to where you could find the ATR2100 in case you wanted to pick up one of those. Uh, but I'll also put a link in the show notes for the Apple page website page where that has the requirements for a podcast to be in iTunes. Uh, another startup cost is sometimes is you need artwork and iTunes requires artwork that meets a certain there are certain requirements that are you'll find at that link that I mentioned. Um, and a lot of people create their own in software that comes on their computer. I hired a graphic designer named Jenny Hampson to create the Productive Woman logo and the artwork that goes with my podcast. I want to say it costed about $350 for the package of artwork that Jenny created. That was four years ago. Uh, I can, if you're interested in talking with Jenny, she does great work. Uh, um, shoot me an email at feedback at the productivewoman.com and I'll put you in touch with her. Another designer that I know is a guy named Mark DeCote. He's in Canada. He's a graphic designer and he does podcast artwork. You need to have what they call the cover art. That's kind of your logo and the image that people see when they look at it in iTunes, when they're looking for it. And you can find him at resourcefuldesigner.com. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. You need a site, a website place to host the audio files and the show notes if you do them. So if you've ever visited theproductivewoman.com, you see the show notes. Basically, it's a blog post with an audio player there. And it's the summary of what we talk about on the show and the links and all that sort of thing. If you're going to do show notes, you don't have to do them as extensive as I do them. I just want them to be particularly helpful. Uh, but you need somewhere to 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 for your audio file once you've recorded it to live. There are a number of of hosts ways you could do that. Uh, Libsyn and Blueberry are two of the kind of well known audio hosts, and they both I think I know Libsyn. You can actually have your website you know a page right there for on their Libsyn site for your podcast for the same price as hosting your audio. I think Blueberry does the same thing. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. I think it's around $15 a month or so or and, and upwards from that, depending on what features you want. I think I pay $20 a month to Libsyn for hosting my audio files. Um, you can pay hundreds of dollars for audio editing software. But when I first started, I edited my own using GarageBand on my Mac computer. After that, I paid somebody to do it for several months for maybe it was a couple years. 
I want to say it was around $400 a month for editing the audio files for every week's episode and doing the show notes. Now my husband does my audio editing for me, and then I have an assistant, a virtual assistant, Sarah, who does the first draft of the show notes. She does some other things too. So there are a lot of ways you can do it. Most people start out doing it on their own. It's not impossibly hard to do it. And there are ways that you can learn how to do all this stuff yourself to keep the costs minimal. But the ongoing costs that I pay right now uh, are my Libsyn fee of about $20 a month and then what I pay to my assistant to do the show notes and some of the other stuff she does for me. For, for I'll put some links in the show notes for uh, for resources for people who want to start a podcast. There are people who will teach you how um, for a fee or there are resources that you can get for free. Daniel J. Lewis, who is the the owner the who runs the Noodle Mix Network that the Productive Woman is on, he has a podcast called The Audacity to Podcast, and that's one of the places I went to to learn how to podcast. He does episodes uh, about all the various things you need to know how to do to have a successful podcast. It's a great... He's been on hiatus for a while, but his back catalog has almost everything you'd ever want to know about how to start and run a podcast. So I definitely check that out. Uh, Another one that's excellent is Dave Jackson's School of Podcasting. He has both a podcast that you can listen to for free to learn how to do things, but also he has literally a an online school of podcasting. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes so you can check that out if you want to learn more. And then there's a podcast called She Podcasts, hosted by Elsie Escobar, who was our guest on episode 91, and her colleague Jessica Kupferman. They have a podcast that's kind of targeted to women who want a podcast. It's very good. They have tons of information and inspiration and encouragement there. But they also do coaching and, and, and teach women how to podcast. So again, links to all that in the show notes in case you want to start one on your own. I hope that answers that question for you, Candice. Let me know if you have follow-up questions. Candace's second question was this, and this is so not related to podcasting, going back to my legal career. She said, Throughout your legal career, did you have to deal with the good old boys club, maybe just getting through law school and or competing for jobs with peers or getting respect as a woman with clients and share strategies you used if you did? And Candace, I got to say, I haven't felt like I was excluded or disadvantaged as a woman in the legal profession. I think that might be partly because I simply chose not to let it disadvantage me. I chose not to focus on a good old boys club I, or not let it influence how I went about learning or practicing law. Uh, certainly, there I have run into both men and women, honestly, who weren't very supportive or encouraging. There have been, you know, kind of some old-fashioned... I, I, I just never, some old-fashioned things. I live in the South, and there are some some of the older male attorneys maybe were not condescending, but just, you know, treated me maybe a little differently. But I just ignored it and went about doing my work. I, I didn't let it bother me. I didn't let it uh, upset me. 
And I always found advocates and um, allies who would help me in my efforts to become a really good lawyer and to succeed as a lawyer. I was fortunate to have a truly generous mentor. I mentioned him in episode 199, Larry, uh, an older male lawyer who was my mentor from my early days as a lawyer. And he taught me both legal skills and practice skills, business development and uh, managing clients and all those sorts of things. I also made a point of working with most of the senior partners, both male and female, going to them and and um, asking to work on projects with them so I could get to know their, their style and get to know them as people. I think f- um, in doing that, it helped me, as I mentioned, find allies, both men and women, who would help me navigate the career. Um uh, as I said, I I have run into some men and, and women who were not as supportive, who were more competitive or, or frankly, were just downright unpleasant to deal with. But I didn't let it impact my attitude. I found ways to stand up for myself without sinking to the level of being unpleasant in return. And so it, I, I don't feel like it disadvantaged me. It's certainly, I was never economically disadvantaged as a woman in my law profession. I see the articles. I know that some women feel that they have been. I just personally didn't experience that. Um, one of the things that I noticed early on was that lots of business development, client um, relationships were developed in, in for lawyers a lot of it happens on the golf course, but I don't play golf and I didn't want to learn to play golf. I played golf once and it was heinous. I hated it. And so it just I just realized that was not going to be a place where I would go to build relationships with clients. So I looked for and found other ways to build those relationships because it's very important for lawyers. It's very important for most people in business to do a certain amount of business development, relationship building with clients and colleagues. I found other ways to do that. I would uh, take clients to concerts, to dinners, to other kinds of events that I enjoyed where I could interact with them um, away from the office and build those relationships. And at the end of the day, I my way of dealing with what maybe there was a good old boys club and I just didn't let it slow me down. I made a point of doing the very best work I was capable of always and let that speak for me. I, you know, I think of the quote that Steve Martin, the comedian has quoted as saying, be so good, they can't ignore you. That was, I mean, part of it's just my work ethic to do the best work I'm capable of, but I believe that good work will get the attention of the people who need to see it. You got to speak up, of course, and, and all those things that we we talk about. Maybe we'll do an episode about that. I actually have a guest in mind to come and talk about um, speaking up for yourself. But, you know, as Steve said, and, and what I tried to do was be so good, they couldn't ignore me, even if I wasn't a member of the good old boys club. Maya Angelou has said something similar. She says, you or said you can only become truly accomplished at something you love don't make money your goal instead pursue the things you love doing and then do them so well that people can't take their eyes off of you and i i really believe that if you do excellent work 
it will get the attention of the people who can help advance your your career. It will make a place for its for itself, I guess. Um, let me know what you think, though, Candice, uh, and if I hope that answers your question. All right, the next question is from another listener in Australia, uh, Sam in Australia. And uh, Sam shared some things uh, that she has lots of things she really wants to do. She says, I currently work in a museum. I'm an historian, but I'm really interested in coding, 3D design and printing, and a lot of the tech slash maker movement activities going on at the moment. And while I'm quite overwhelmed and often confused, I'm not really scared. I'm comfortable to get in and make mistakes. It helps that that mistakes are a key part of the maker's manifesto. And as a side thing, Sam, I'd love to hear more about that. I don't think I know anything about this maker movement. Uh, But she says, mistakes are how we learn. She says, what I struggle with is not so much fear, but of finding time and making this part of my life a priority. I have so much to learn to achieve the goals I have. I have some beginner's books and some online tutorials, but when, oh, when can I get to them? I have three beautiful young children and I work full time. My husband's away for work about six months across the year. I get quite frustrated that this thing I really want to pursue for no reason other than to satisfy my own curiosity is such a low priority, not only to me, but to everyone. So then she goes on to summarize. This is Sam from Australia. And my question is how to get started when there's so much else to do. How can I make my own self-fulfillment a priority without neglecting my other obligations? Great question, Sam. So much of what the Productive Woman podcast is about is trying to answer that very question. Um, And without making it, uh, you know, a whole episode, uh, some thoughts that come to mind is, you know, when you're assuming you know what you know what you want to do, I think then it becomes a mindset issue and a commitment issue. And the mindset has to start from there is always time to do what matters. Sometimes we have to make those decisions to set aside other things. And that's where the commitment comes in. We need to be willing to set aside other things to make space for what matters more to us. And this is hard. And we're going to talk about this more uh, more again, because other questions came in that are similar on this issue of how do you decide what to do? We can't do everything, can we? There are a finite number of hours in the day. We Energy is a finite resource. We can only do a certain amount of things. And we have to decide how much we want to do this thing. And so making that decision, convincing ourselves that there is time to do what matters most to us. We have to make the time. Nobody's going to give us that time. We have to make it. And then we have to be willing to set aside other things, at least for now, to make that space and time to do what matters more to us. We also have to be willing to live with small steps, tiny bits of progress. Uh, A little bit of progress is still better than no progress at all. And so we need to be, you know, I think we, sometimes we have these dreams of things we want to accomplish and we just want to go full bore into it and accomplish it all, you know, next week. 
And the fact is, if we've got small children at home, if we've got a a spouse that we want to spend time with, if we've got a full-time job and there's this other thing we want to do, we're going to have to be satisfied with small amounts of progress. And that's okay. Okay? That Having said all that, we've talked about some of these things in the past, Sam, so I would point you to uh, episode 74, way back then, an episode called Just Start. And we talked about just getting yourselves, getting yourself to start. Uh, episode 125 was part of our Dream to Done mini-series, and it was about what's holding you back, what's keeping you from starting. And episode 102 was called What Are You Waiting For? What's key? So those two episodes are, are really asking what's keeping you from getting started and what can you do about that? And some of the things we talked about in episode 74, just start. Uh, I encourage you to go back and look at that and look at the show notes and listen to that episode. But real quickly, some of the things that takes to get started are number one, give yourself permission to do it badly. Number two, remember your why. Why do you want to do this? And just because you're curious about it, Sam, that's good enough. It's okay. Um, Give yourself permission to do that. Number three is to reframe how you think about it. And this is what I was just talking about. You don't have to do it all at one sitting. Be okay with slow progress. What matters is that you're making forward movement, even if it's very small increments. Number four is to find the simplest way in. What's the smallest thing you can do to get started? Number five is to create a good working environment. So one of your steps in preparing to do this thing is to gather your materials, your resources, get it, get a place where you can sit down and work on it uh, and, and get ready to go. Number six is to choose a tiny task, some small little thing you can do to get yourself started so that you can have that satisfaction of um, getting started and making progress on this thing. And number seven is to find an accountability partner. So often um, we will do things if we've got if we're answering to somebody. So Sam, I'd encourage you to find someone else that you know who also has a dream of something they want to accomplish and hold each other accountable. Check in every week, every day, something like that. If you don't have somebody local, uh, you can hire a coach who will help you. Uh, You can join a mastermind group. I've had so many women in the productive woman community who've been part of a productive woman mastermind for this very reason, to get themselves off the dime and moving forward on something that they've wanted to do for a long time. Having someone to hold you accountable and to give you that encouragement can make a huge difference. Uh, The next thing I would say is in terms of finding time to take those small steps, spend a, a week or so tracking how you're actually spending your time. Write it down and then look and see what is there that could be eliminated or deferred. What are you doing that you could set aside to not do for a while in order to make small amounts of time available regularly to work on your project? The bottom line is, if it matters to us, we will find time. We can find time, maybe just 10 minutes a week, but that's 10 minutes you weren't spending before. And and that you can accomplish a whole lot of things just 10 minutes at a time. So I hope that helps, Sam. 
All right, the next question comes from Jan. I hope that's how you pronounce it. Um, uh, who said, um, I'm an emergency physician hospitalist with four young children under the age of eight. She says, my schedule is erratic and includes periods of intense work, like eight to 10 days of work straight, mixed with slower weeks with only two or three shifts. I'm wondering if you have any strategies for either staying or getting myself back on track after one of these stretches of work. I'm trying to be more routine, but find it challenging because of the variability of my schedule. And that's a great question. That has come up many times. A lot of us struggle with that. Uh, and I'll, I think I've done episodes about that. I'll try to uh, find, and uh, we did an episode, and I, I didn't write this in my notes, but we did one not too long ago on um, uh, staying productive when you have a non-standard schedule. So there, you might find some tips there. I'll put a link in the show notes here to that episode. But uh, and, and we may do an episode again coming up where we can talk about some of these things in more depth uh, for this kind of thing. First thing I would say, Jan, um, is build in rest periods. When you come off of a eight to ten day stretch of working every day, you need some rest. So build that into your schedule. The second thing I would say is to create two separate routines. So yeah, it's hard to create a routine when your schedule changes, but if you have you mentioned you have periods of intense work where you have several days in a row of working and then followed by a period of slower weeks where you don't have as many shifts. So have two separate routines, one for those slower weeks where you can maybe get more things done at home or whatever, and one for those hard work weeks uh, or stretches where you don't do as much stuff. Your uh, stretches where you have you know, several days in a row of working every day, those, that routine should just be maintenance, just doing the, the minimum that needs to be done to, uh, you know, keep the, the health department from condemning your house, keep everybody, everybody safe and healthy. And, don't try to do any heavy duty stuff during those weeks. Maybe during your slower weeks, you your part of your routine would be to cook some meals ahead and put them in the freezer so that you've got them uh, for the the heavy the intense weeks, and you can just pull those out and warm them up, or your your husband can, or whatever, or you know. Uh, so those are those are uh, the th- three things: build and rest create two separate routines, get maintenance systems in place for those long work periods, and finally, find some help. What can you delegate so you don't spend your slow weeks working instead of enjoying your family? What things can be deferred until a different stage of your life, but where can you get help? Can you hire someone to come in and you know do some of the cleaning? Even if it's just a you know a teenager or a, maybe a stay-at-home mom who'd like a little extra cash, uh, who could come in and do some of the cleaning, so that when you have your slow weeks, you can focus on resting and enjoying your family and not have to work the whole time. I hope that helps. Um, again, I'll put links in the show notes to the previous episodes where we've talked about some of this, and I'll probably plan to do an episode in the future that expands on some of this. 
I want to take a quick break from answering questions to share a little bit about our new sponsor, Babbel, which is the number one selling language learning app in the world. It teaches you a new language in a different way that actually makes you remember what you learn so that you can start speaking confidently. It's a very quick, fun, and efficient way to learn a language with Babbel, and it's that's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L. I think it's important to learn another language. In the 21st century, our world has gotten smaller and smaller. There are things we um, can learn from each other, but not if we can't communicate. I've always been a big fan. I think it's, it's a sad thing that while in many other countries, people, children learn other, another language from elementary school on, the United States, we don't always do that. Uh, and I think it's just a difference of our culture and the size of our country. But I think it's so important to do that. And Babbel can help you do that. I have been using it to learn Italian because Mike and I are planning to go to Europe in uh, 2019 to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. I want to go to Italy and I want to be able to speak the language at least to some extent. And Babbel has really been helping. Um, They're using Using Babbel, you can be speaking your new language within weeks. It does it, you learn through interactive dialogues, through speech recognition and fun trainers and quizzes, and you can learn any number of languages, Spanish, French, Italian, Swedish, Russian, German, many more. It the, the lessons that they have for you help you get ready for all kinds of practical situations like chatting with new friends, ordering food, asking for directions, and more. And the lessons are just 10 or 15 minutes, easy and quick to do, and they're available either online or in an app you can download to your phone. So I encourage you to check out Babbel by going to babbel.com. And if you use the offer code TPW, you'll get 50% off your first three months of Babbel. So that's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com and the offer code TPW for 50% off your first three months. Next question comes from Rita in Pennsylvania. Uh, Rita says, I found your podcast through the Ride Every Stride podcast and have become an avid fan of the productive woman over the last several months. My question is, you don't talk about your riding activities on the Productive Woman podcast. Are you still riding? Do you own a horse now? If so, tell us about him, her, and what you are doing together. How much do you ride and how do you fit it in? And she says, thanks for the podcast. Okay, so what Rita's talking about, and I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but I co-host another podcast that is actually hosted by uh, a guy that used to train my horses. Uh, I've known him for years. And so that podcast is called Ride Every Stride. He is a trainer, a clinician, a, a presenter, a teacher, really, really great teacher of, about horsemanship concepts. And he kind of talks about the the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. And his name is Van Hargis. And he asked me, he want, I, I encouraged him to launch a podcast so he could share what he teaches with more people. He talked me into co-hosting it with him. And so we do that. And um, I met him because I have horses and I needed a trainer for a horse. So, so Rita... I do still have a horse. We actually still own two horses. At one point, we had six horses and a donkey here on the farm. But I 
I work so much that I really didn't have time to ride them and uh, ended up finding better homes for them and kept just the two that I started with. And they are a 23-year-old Morab gelding named Gabar and a 20-year-old Arabian mare named Alea. And they're both rideable. They're both healthy and, and they're both gray. I'll see if I can find a picture and put it in the show notes. Um, and... I don't really ride them right now. I haven't ridden in quite a while. For the past years, it was because I just had little time. I had a long commute, worked long hours, and so I was hardly ever home. There just wasn't time to ride. And then for the that three-year stretch, I was staying in Dallas at our apartment there during the week, and uh, weekends were catch up time for other things. So I don't do a ton of riding. I really haven't ridden much for the last few years. They're kind of just pasture pets right now. I've never been one into showing or competing, although I thought about it at, at various times. I just, it's just for the fun of it. It's, and I just enjoy being around them. Uh, my sister who lives near here keeps her horses at our barn and she actually has ridden Gabar. She and her son, her 13 year old son, my nephew, have ridden Gabar in some barrel racing events. And, um, cause he's got some background in that. And, you know, we get, my husband will get Gabar or Alea out from time to time and, and we'll let the kids, the grandkids ride, you know, we'll lead them around on them. But I don't do a ton of riding. I just enjoy having them and letting them be old horses who are very much loved and enjoyed. So I hope that's not disappointing to you. Um, I, you know, I, I like to ride, but I don't, it, it kind of goes to the point of what I've talked about earlier, both in this episode and elsewhere. We have to choose what we do with our time. And my time is pretty full with my legal work, with productive woman stuff, uh, and with my family and working on writing the book right now. I do want to, you know, ride more in the <laughs> in the very near future. Honestly, right now, it's you know, the temperatures are near 100 every day and it's very humid and it's no fun to go out and ride in that. So I'd love to hear what you do, what horses you own, Rita, and, and what you do with them. So shoot me an email or share something in the Facebook group. All right, the next question is from Nancy Joe, and she sent in an audio question that again relates to uh, my law school and early practice years. And so here's, here's Nancy and her question. Hey, Laura, Nancy Joe from Alabama. I know you're a bar certified licensed attorney, and I know that the college and education it took to get there because I walked that path, <laughs> often crawled. Um, I'm curious as to what your planning and time management and your productivity system that you used during that time and now how it has evolved over time to what you're currently using. Um, be, I would be interested to find out um, how things have changed and actually um, how you got to that point. Love the podcast and tuning in weekly. Thanks for all you do. So great question. As I've mentioned before, by the time I started law school, I was 35 years old. I'd been married about 16 years and we had five kids. I had also been a productivity nerd since I was in my teens. So I had routines and systems in place for the basics of life. And um, they really carried me through law school with, uh, with certainly with some adaptations because prior to going back to school, I'd been a full-time stay-at-home mom. And so all of this was happening uh, at a time 
in the you know mid to late 90s, this was pre-smartphone time. So my systems involved the use of a paper planner. And honestly, I don't remember which one it was that I used at the time. I, tr- I had tried a couple different ones and kind of had a hybrid that I had developed for myself. I ha- already had the habit of writing everything down. Uh, I'd done that for years, maybe decades before I started law school and started practicing law. I relied then, as I do now, on my calendar and my to-do list. Those are the core of my time management and organization system that has carried me through all the stages of my life. I added the school stuff into my calendar and my to-do list. At the time, my central calendar Uh, I I mean, I had a calendar that I carried with me in my planner, but we had a central calendar that I kept on the refrigerator that everybody in the family had to put their appointments and their stuff on. If they all knew, everybody knew if if it's not on the calendar, it's not going to happen, especially if you need a ride from mom. And so that was a big part of it. My system revolved around and still honestly still does around my calendar, my to-do list, my task manager. My routines uh, had developed over the course of years and continued through law school and even into my practice. I had and still have certain days that I did certain activities. So I know a lot of people will do a load of laundry every day. I have always had one day a week that I do all the laundry. I mean, if there's some urgent need, I'll throw another load in on another day. But I right now, I generally do laundry on Thursdays and I gather everything up and I do it all and, and fold it, you know, wash it, dry it, fold it and put it away all in that day. So everybody's got clean clothes. It's all done and I can close the laundry room door and not think about it. And that's basically the way I've always done it. Um, I had certain days when I would do my grocery shopping. I planned meals in advance and planned a grocery list and would get to the grocery store and just shop that list and get out of there. And I did that kind of the same day every week. I've always had a system where if I had errands to run, I would do several of them all at once so that I didn't have to make multiple trips into town. So those kinds of routines and having certain days for certain activities helped me get through law school, uh, continue to help me now, um, have always helped me. I... Uh, another thing that really made a difference for me when I was in law school and in my early years is we had taught the kids to help. So before I ever went away to, you know, went to law school, our kids, as they were growing up, had been taught to help. And I've talked about this earlier in this episode. So everybody had certain responsibilities depending on their age and what they're capable of, you know, maybe setting the table, maybe putting the silverware away out of the dishwasher, folding laundry, whatever, everyone helped. Everybody was would participate. The kids were responsible for keeping their rooms clean and those sorts of things. And then my routine during school was to get up early to study before the kids were up um, and, you know, fit it in when and as I could. Um, we always had a routine of reasonable bedtimes for the kids so that Mike and I could have some quiet time in the evenings before we had to go to bed. And the other survival mechanism really was just communication. Mike and I would talk about the, you know, what needed to be done, what kid needed to be where, who, who was going to do what they're just always trying to communicate. 
Um, and that that's how it worked. You you asked about how it's changed over time. Not a lot. I, there certainly have been refinements at different stages of my life. Uh, the biggest change, I guess, now is that uh, my calendar is digital. There's no no calendar hanging on the refrigerator. My husband and I share calendars, so I know where he is. He knows where I am. Uh, my task primary task manager is digital, but the principles are the same, and those principles have have served me well for all these years. So hope that helps. Thanks for the question, Nancy Joe. All right, next question is from Angelica, who says, I recently helped a family member go through piles of paperwork that belonged to their father who had just passed away. From both your legal and productivity perspective, how do we best leave our affairs in order so we don't leave our loved ones overwhelmed? Um, great question, Angelica. And honestly, I'm going to do, I, I think there's so much you could go into here that I'm going to do an episode about this in the near future. So watch for that. Uh, but so let me just very quickly share a couple of things because my goodness, this episode is, is, is long. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, I can't give you legal advice, of course, because I'm not your lawyer. Um, and the law, the legal implications, I guess, are going to be different in different jurisdictions. But some practical thoughts that I would say in terms of getting your affairs in order, make sure you have the basics in place, that you have, first of all, the necessary insurance policies, life insurance, home insurance, auto insurance, that you have those policies in place, that they're paid, the premiums are paid, that the beneficiaries are up to date, um, life insurance and those sorts of things. You have to name who a beneficiary is, I think, usually, and um, make sure that's current. If you've, you know, if you've had a, a life insurance policy for ages and you're, you're, you divorced and you and remarried make sure your current spouse is the beneficiary or your current children or whatever make sure you have a will and that the beneficiaries there are up to date and if you've got uh, that the the person who's named to administer your will in the case of your death is current uh, if you want to have a living will and a statement of what your wishes are for your funeral, have those things all in place and maybe a power of attorney. Who would you want making decisions for your health and your finances if you were not able to do so because of a medical condition or whatever? Have, give some thought to those kinds of things. Lawyer, A lawyer can help you with a lot of those things. There are online resources. I'll see if I can find some of those to point you to. Uh, if you have a lot of assets, I encourage you to meet with a, an, a, an estate planning attorney and really get those all that paperwork in place so that there's no question about what you want to have happen in the event that you die or are incapacitated. So have all those things in place. Have a safe place to keep all those important papers. So your insurance policies, your will, your advance directive, your list of bank account numbers, important websites and the passwords. Don't put those in a sticky note on your computer. Have them somewhere secure. You can keep passwords and those sorts of things in something like LastPass or 1Password 
Uh, those can be stored there and share those with your spouse or another trusted family member. But have all those things in a safe place. Uh, some people keep them in a, you know, a, a tin box in their refrigerator. So they maybe will survive if there's a house fire, something like that, or a safe if you have it. But have them all gathered in a place and make sure someone knows where they are and how to get to them. That's probably the key thing. And we'll talk more about that on a future episode, because I think that's so important for us as women to be thinking about these things. So thank you for asking that, Angelica. Next question is from Amy, who says, uh, she says, I'm turning 30 with a successful career and a wonderful husband. My job makes me feel indispensable since my department is only three people. My two co-workers are retirement age and career focused. They have no husbands or kids. My husband and I want to have kids, but we're struggling to figure out when. We don't own a home yet. We're still paying off our student loans, and my job pays more than my husband's. There's also a lot of pressure at work, intentional or unintentional, to stay on and delay a family. Is there advice you could give to help us navigate these decisions? Um, great questions, Amy. And I, you know, you're at such a, an amazing stage of life where uh, all those things are kind of in front of you. And those are some important decisions to be thinking about. I can offer some advice, but I want you to take it with a grain of salt. This, these are, this is one woman's opinion and other people may feel differently. And so these are the, the thoughts that I had as I was pondering your question. First of all, I don't think there's ever a perfect time to have kids. Um, that you know, you can put it off eternally, waiting for everything to be lined up and everything to be perfectly in order, and that time will never come. Uh, second thing I thought of is, and this is just me, I personally don't know anybody who has kids who regrets having had them. I do know some women who didn't have children. Uh, and regret that choice, or women who delayed and and found that they were, um, as they, it, for various reasons, unable to have children, um, and they regret that. I'm not saying there are no such women as those who had kids who regret them, or women who didn't and don't regret them. I know that I've read articles, so I know those women exist. I'm just saying I personally haven't, don't know people, haven't had those conversations. Um, I. To me, for me personally, the best thing I've ever done in my life is is having children, um, and I'll I'll mention that. <laughs> you know, I'm proud of my professional accomplishments. I'm grateful for what my law degree and my career have brought me and for my family. But for me personally, nothing I've ever done in my life means more or is more satisfying than raising my kids and seeing them become happy, productive adults. Nothing. I've done as a lawyer has brought me more joy or frankly been as difficult as caring for and spending time with my kids. I, it's, it's the hardest thing I've done and the most rewarding. And, you know, going back to the question who, about what, how I define happy, happy is when my kids are around and they're, and they're happy and healthy. Um, and so that's me personally. What I would say to you, Amy, is don't let other people, me included, define what your life or your career should look like. I think 
Sometimes it feels like society seems to trivialize the value of mothers, of parents in general, and emphasize the value of career and money and achievement. And I think sometimes that can make us feel that if we're not pursuing career advancement 100%, we're wasting our abilities. Um, there's nothing wrong with pursuing a career. I think it's great, and, and if, if that makes you... If you're satisfied with that, then then do that. But I think investing in the next generation is just as valid a use of our minds and our abilities as moving up the corporate ladder. That's, again, that's me personally. That's what I think. Amy, I encourage you to choose for yourself and don't let those at your workplace decide for you. Don't let me decide for you. But no matter how much those people you work with like you, they're not looking out for your best interests. They're looking out for their own. And that, don't don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they're evil, selfish people. We all do that. We all are more interested in our own well-being and our own happiness than other people's happiness. So don't, you know, don't let their example decide for you. You can learn from them and listen to them about what it takes to be successful in the career you've chosen, but ultimately it's got to be your choice. Your career path doesn't have to look like anybody else's. As I've already mentioned, I went to law school in my mid-30s after having had my five kids. I started my legal career at age 38 with five kids in tow. I still made partner. I still have accomplished what I wanted to accomplish as a lawyer. So I did it backwards, but it worked for me. You can create the path that makes sense for you. So again, I don't let other people define what your career should look like. Similarly, don't let society define your vision of family. Some communities seem to portray a vision of parenting that requires a lot of money. You got to have a big house that you, you know, own, you and the bank own. Got to have a big yard, got to have a luxury SUV and maybe nannies and private preschool and name label clothes and rooms full of toys and lessons and summer camps and after school enrichment activities. There's nothing wrong with any of those. And if you want those things for your kids, that's great. But it that vision of parenting, I think, can make us believe you need significant income, two incomes, in order to ever have children. And I just don't think that's true. Nothing wrong with it if that's the light, the way you want to create your life, but it's not necessary. So you don't have to own a home to have your first child. We didn't own a home until we bought our first home. I think it was the first home we bought. We moved in the day, you know, the week I, our third child was born. So we already, we had rented up until that point. We were still, <laughs> I went to school late, so we were paying off student loans when our, my kids were in high school. We made it work. I I don't think you need to have a ton of money to have to, and raise happy children. Babies need love and food and diapers. Kids, I think, with rooms full of toys are no happier than adults with rooms full of, you know, toys, air quotes. I think stuff is a poor substitute for time together as a family. Nothing wrong with having stuff, but you don't need all that stuff in order to have kids. I, I, I guess the last thing I would say on this, Amy, is whatever you decide, 
I encourage you that you and your husband decide it together and be in agreement about what to do. Um, make the life that you want as a couple and have children when you want to, not when uh, somebody else says you're ready. So hope that helps. Uh, I would be, I would love to hear from other listeners who maybe have some advice for Amy on this question. So if you're in the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, let's have that conversation there. All right. Brandy says, you've mentioned homeschooling your many kids in the past. Would you like to share why and what it's like? Um, and so that's a great question. Yes, Brandy, we have five kids. Um, I homeschooled Rachel, our oldest, from first grade through ninth grade, which her ninth grade year was during my first year of law school. We originally started homeschooling because we had met some families with teenagers who had been homeschooled, and we were just really impressed with their accomplishments, both academic and otherwise, how well-spoken they were, and how easily they interacted with people of all ages. So they were able to have great conversations with adults, got along well with our small children, just kind of, we just were impressed with those kids as people. So we started researching it. I did a lot of reading about homeschooling because that was my first exposure to it. And ultimately, we just, my husband and I both felt it was the best choice for our kids' education for a lot of reasons. When we started, what, you know, you asked what it was like. When we started, we, I basically did school at home. I set up a little desk for, for Rachel that we bought from a, a school auction. Um, you know, had a little marker board on the wall and a flag and all the stuff. And really did school at home, very much like it would have been in a classroom. Over time, uh, over the years that we homeschooled, as I learned and gained confidence in my ability to teach them what they needed to know and in the materials that I chose to to teach them with, um, I tried other approaches. And we got more relaxed and, um, you know, did, did different approaches to education that still had her achieving, them achieving very well, doing well on standardized tests and uh, accomplishing a lot so that when they went into regular school, um, they were right on track, actually a little ahead of, of where their peers were. What I loved about it, um, I enjoyed seeing my kids learn and being a part of that process. I enjoyed the fact that we controlled our schedule so we could schedule our holidays, our school breaks uh, during times that worked for my husband's job. We were able to visit museums and you know other kinds of places during the day when the crowds were smaller instead of having to do it when everybody else was there on the weekends. And I really enjoyed the homeschooling community and uh, the people that I got to know through doing that. So that's a little bit of what it was like. Uh, I hope that helps. All right, next question is from Suzanne from Europe. She says, we all have so much to do and we love so much. Do you have tips for prioritizing what is more important and why? She says, for me, everything looks important. This is a great question. And we've talked about that a little bit already in this episode. It's a challenge when your spouse and your kids and your health and your job and your friends and your, you know, maybe charity work all need attention. How do you choose how and where and when to spend your time and what to do first? 
That's the question. I think a lot of what we talk about on The Productive Woman is about that. Uh, personally, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer succinctly. I personally have never been comfortable with ranking people and, you know, saying, for instance, uh, a priority list, my husband comes first, then my kids, then my family, then my job, or, you know, whatever. I, rather than ranking things and kind of putting them in num- numerical order, I prefer identifying what's important in my life, period, and then evaluating my schedule to make sure everything that's truly important to me gets time allocated to it. And I try to be pretty ruthless about cutting out the stuff that isn't essential. So for example, when I had babies, I did much less stuff in our church or our community. Um, because the most important thing was to take care of those kids and to be a wife to Mike and to make sure our home was in order. Uh, so I didn't do much else outside that. It was For me, that was an easy choice. It might be um, a harder choice if you have an important role in your community that you need to fulfill. But uh, you, you can find other things that are less important and cut those down or out or get help, as we've talked about before. Now I can do more outside the home because my kids are older and don't need my time every day. So different stages of life, um, things kind of play out differently. I'm not sure there are right or wrong answers here. I don't think there is an objective answer as to what's most important. I think it's a constantly evolving balance of taking care of the things that uh, that matter, all the things that matter, and making sure that I have time with my husband, time with my kids, certainly spend the time that I need to on my career, on my law practice, and so on. I think the only thing I could say is to try to keep the big picture and the long term in mind and know that things will change the the balance and what's getting the most attention at any given time will change over time. I would encourage you also when everything looks important, um, it's hard to it's hard to find uh, to, to kind of order things. I would encourage you to read some of the books we've talked about um, in our productive reading series on the show uh, are really good at focusing, helping us focus in on priority and how to prioritize things. Uh, So Essentialism, The Disciplined, excuse me, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McCune. We talked about that on episode 32. Uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller was the focus of our episode 133. And Courtney Carver's Soulful Simplicity was, uh, was, the focus of episode 182. You can listen to those episodes for the highlights, but I encourage you to pick up copies of those books. I'll put links in the show notes to where you can find them. They're all available on Amazon. Uh, you can read them or listen to the audiobook. So much wisdom in them all that really will help in that process of prioritizing and figuring out where should I be spending my time and my energy and my attention right now. They're very well worth reading. All right, Georgie in the Facebook group asked a question that I can answer pretty quickly. She's, she asked, what did you want to be when you were a child? Um, Georgie, I wanted to be a singer, a country western singer, actually, uh, and a writer. I loved to write. I used to write stories when I was a kid, and I used to 
you know, sing a lot. I sang all through high school and stuff. Um, obviously, my life's gone a different path, and I'm not a country music star, but that's what I wanted to be when I was a kid. My dad played the guitar and loved country music, and I, I loved to listen to it with him, and that was what I wanted to do. Uh, I still want to be a writer. I still, I do write, and I'm as you know, if you've listened, I am working on the outline and a proposal for a productive woman book that I hope to write in the coming months. So thanks for that question. Mary also in the Facebook group asked, in what ways did your attitudes about your career change once all your kids left the house? Um, I think it's easier to spend more time at my career uh, when the kids aren't here needing time and attention. But honestly, my career has actually become less important to me over time. And that it's not because the kids have left, but just because other things have become more important to me. The productive woman, this community uh, is very important to me. I, of course, still spend the time uh, on my career. We need the income and I want to do my very best possible work for my clients, but it doesn't uh, I, I'm not, I've achieved, I think what I wanted to achieve as a lawyer in terms of being able to help people, which I will always be able to do with my law career or law degree. Um, and, you know, making partner at a large firm, I did that. Um, those things are less important to me now than they have been in the past. I am more focused on, uh, interacting with and caring for this productive woman community and my writing. Um, the only thing I would say, my attitude about my career, I wish I had spent more time with my kids before they left. I wish, you know, that was the challenge of starting a law career in my thirties when my kids were already there. Um, I, you know, the early years in particular of a legal career are very demanding in terms of time. And I think I worked more then I, I, I just wish I hadn't. I wish I had had more time with them. I'm, you know, and I try to make time now whenever I can. So I hope that answers that question. Shauna says, I'm familiar with quarterly planning and reviews as well as weekly planning reviews. However, I have never been able to master and do them. I am detail-oriented, so I think I get bogged down in the details and end up not doing these valuable activities. Any tips or tricks for me to try to do these activities on a recurring basis? Also, do you do a work and personal weekly review or do you combine? So Shauna, for me, things don't happen unless they're scheduled unless they have a day and a time assigned to them and it's on my calendar and the alert dings at me and says, go do this thing. And so I have a certain day and time when I do my reviews. Um, one of the things um, I would suggest, and I would suggest you do the same, pick a day and a time and make that appointment with yourself, get it on your calendar. Perhaps put a checklist together of the things that you want to do as part of your review, type it up, and then print yourself a copy each week when you sit down at the appointed time and check them off as you do them. It's it's really, in order to be consistent, it's like anything else. It's about building a habit, little by little. Each time you do it, you reinforce that habit uh, and make it 
easier to do it than to not do it. I encourage you, if you haven't already read it, to read The Power of Habit, a book by Charles Duhigg. We've talked about it. It was, I think it was one of our productive reading books. Uh, I don't remember which episode it was, but I'll put the link in it. Uh, read or listen, listen to the audiobook. It explains the science behind how habits are formed and why they are beneficial. Uh, in overcoming the resistance to getting these things done and offer some really practical advice on building a habit of whatever kind. So in your case of doing that weekly review, as far as uh, whether I do a, a separate work and personal or combine them in the past, when I was traveling to an office each day, I would do a separate work review on Friday afternoons uh, before I left the office for the week, just to make sure I knew I hadn't missed anything. I did it kind of right after lunch so that if there was something I'd forgotten about that needed attention, I still had time to do it. But that way, when I left the office on Friday, I knew I had taken care of what needed to be done that week. I knew what was on tap for the following week and could make sure I was prepared or at least knew what I needed to do to prepare so that I was ready to go on Monday. Now I work at home. I tend to combine my reviews to some degree. I basically do a mini review Friday afternoons for work uh, and then do my main review Sunday afternoons looking forward to the coming week, both personally and for my work. And I'm sure we'll be talking about reviews again. I know you've listened to the episodes, Shauna, where I've talked about reviews. Uh, Hopefully you can get some tips there as well. All right, next question is from Anne who asks... Um, who says, congrats on getting to 200 Always Interesting Podcasts. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate that. And her question is, how do you manage the combination of digital tools and a bullet journal? And that's a great question. So basically it's this. My calendar is digital. I use my, uh, it's an Outlook calendar for work because my firm that firm with uses Outlook for those sorts of things. Uh, and that way the people I work with can share it. But all my calendars, including my work when one get combined into the calendar on my Mac. So I can see all my appointments, personal and professional and TPW stuff all online. It allows me to access it, not just from my computer, but also my iPhone, my iPad, anywhere I can get at it also allows me to share share my personal calendars with my husband so he can see. Uh, the reason I like digital calendars besides having access and shareability is I set alerts so it can beep at me to remind me where I'm supposed to be, which a paper calendar can't do. You have to remember to look at it. If you forget to look at it, you might miss an appointment. That doesn't happen with my digital because it beeps at me and it's synced with my Apple Watch, so it also... Uh, my appointments kind of alert me through the watch. So that's where my calendar lives. My main task manager, my most comprehensive project list lives in OmniFocus, which is a digital task manager. Uh, Again, because I can access it from all my devices, I can see it anywhere. I can add things to it. I can dictate them on my watch. I can type it in on my phone. I can manage it from my computer. It's everywhere I go. That's where... Everything goes into there, and that's the comprehensive list, the master list. But day-to-day, I work from my bullet journal, which I started doing, you know, a couple years ago. Uh, I like it 
for a number of reasons. It sits on my desk now, um, so I can see it. It it's kind of a more finite list for the day. So right now, the way I'm using my bullet journal is I have a weekly spread, so I can see the whole week of boxes for each day of the week, and I set that up on Sunday evening. I look at my digital calendar and uh, to see what appointments I have for the coming week, and I write those in on the appropriate day in my bullet journal. And then each evening, I look at OmniFocus, see what my uh, key projects are, what needs to be done, and I'll add the short list of things that I want to do the next day into the bullet journal. Then I can close OmniFocus, avoid getting overwhelmed by the very long list of tasks I've got in there, and I just focus on what I've decided the night before is are my key tasks for that day. So as I'm recording this, it's a Sunday. When I'm done recording, I'm going to sit down and do this process, and I will come up with my short list of three to five, maybe if it's a busy day, seven tasks that have to get done tomorrow, Monday. And that's what I'll look at throughout the day to make sure I get everything done. If I get everything done uh, and I have time and energy left, I can always open up OmniFocus, look at that list and maybe pull another task or two from there. But the day-to-day is is that more finite list that's in in uh, my bullet journal. So I hope that helps. Uh, last question is from Alicia. She says, uh, and this is similar to something we've talked about already. Uh, when weighing your legal career, the productive woman and other ideas and opportunities, how did you determine which to prioritize and give effort to and which to put on the back burner? In other words, how did you determine which goals were worthy of your time and attention? Uh, great question. We've already talked about this some. I hope some of those earlier answers help um, with this question, Alicia. Like many of us, I have lots of ideas, lots of things I'd like to do, but I have learned that I have limited amount of time and energy um, that limits what I can do in any given day. And I've learned to be okay with the fact that I can't do it all. So given that, how do I decide what to do, what to focus on at any given moment? I mean, that's a hard question. We've talked about it in previous episodes. I'll do another episode more to expand on it. But the big picture and having to sort of prioritize between legal work and productive woman and family and all these other things, um, you know, I have to look at my legal work. Our family depends on my income as a lawyer, so I have to make sure I leave sufficient time to properly do my work. And within that, I prioritize based on deadlines, on uh, you know, client needs and all of that, and try to uh, work on things in such a way that everything gets done before the deadline. Um, so my legal work is important to me because our family, because it's my career, I owe it to my clients and because our family depends on the income. The productive woman is incredibly important to me, both the things that I'm doing for the podcast and the community itself. And that takes precedence over many things in my life, but it doesn't pay the bills. So if I'm forced to choose between something I want to do for the productive woman and a pressing obligation to a client, uh, one of my legal clients, I have to set the TPW task aside and find another time to tend to it. Um, I cannot 
um, risk our family income by not doing my legal work, even though uh, tending to the productive woman stuff is very, very important to me personally. For me personally, people are the most important thing. So if someone really needs me in my family, my friends, whatever, I try to move things around to be with them. Um, But my job actually is for the benefit of the people I love and is essential. So I can't always drop my work to spend time with the people I care about, which is very hard for me. Um, But those, those three areas are kind of all I spend my time on, I, you know, I have my self-care, I, my shower and all those sorts of things that have to get done every day, uh, taking care of my home. But I don't do a lot of other things besides my legal work, my productive woman stuff, the podcast and the, the, the other things that I do for that, um, and my family time. There are lots of things I'd like to do, but at this stage of my life, this is what I can do. And the rest I keep on my someday list so that when my life changes, for instance, maybe when I retire from the law practice, I'll be able to devote time and energy to some of those other things that I want to do. Like I've said before, I just, I don't think there's a right answer as to what's most important and what should be done first. I know this isn't a very satisfying answer, but all I can say is, you know, go with your gut. Uh, And I hope that helps. We'll talk about this more in future episodes. I would love to hear from other listeners who maybe have answers to some of these questions, Uh, you know, ideas for Alicia on the prioritizing thing. Uh, Definitely write to me uh, because I don't have all the answers. What I've shared here is in every case, just my opinion, one woman's opinion. If you have suggestions or thoughts about any of these questions, please share them. You can share them uh, in the comments section below the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 200 or on in the Facebook group. Love to do it. Or send me an email at, the, at feedback at theproductivewoman.com. Share your thoughts on the things I've talked about here. I have a couple of closing thoughts, but before I share those, I want to quickly remind you about our sponsors for this episode, Text Expander and Babbel. Remember, you can go to textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20% off your first year of this tool that I find indispensable for my productivity, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Be sure to choose the productive woman from their how did you hear about Text Expander question so they know we sent you. And if one of your goals is to learn a new language or brush up on a language you've studied before, visit babbel.com and use offer code TPW to get 50% off your first three months. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com, offer code TPW for 50% off your first three months. And thank you to Babbel and Text Expander for supporting The Productive Woman. And speaking of thank you... I, I want to say thank you. This, this marathon episode, I've never done an episode this long. I If you've stuck with me, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who sent questions. Uh, and while I'm thanking people, to everyone who's been part of the community, part of this journey with me for the past 200 episodes in four years, whether you've been with me from the beginning or just joined it, you are so important to me. I am so grateful that you take the time to listen to the show, 
to communicate with me when you do, I thank you. I, I, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Some other people I want to thank at this milestone moment. Uh, first of all, I've got to say thank you to Mike. He has been supporting and encouraging me for nearly 40 years now. And I, I wouldn't be who or where I am today without him. So I'm grateful for that. I'm sp- specifically thankful to him for taking on in recent months the task of editing the podcast. This one's going to make him work for it. Uh, so thank you, Mike, for that. I want to say thanks to Sarah, my assistant, for her help with the show notes and the other productive woman stuff that she does for me. She makes it possible for me to do more for the community, and I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you to Daniel J. Lewis for inviting me to bring the productive woman to his noodle mix network uh, four years ago. Uh, he's been a support an encouragement, a, a sounding board and, and so much more. And I'm very, very thankful to Daniel for letting me be a part of his network and for him, his part in making this podcast what it is today. Thank you to the others in the podcasting community who've encouraged and taught me over the years. Thank you to every guest who's given her time and wisdom for the benefit of the Productive Woman community. You know who you are. I know who you are. I am grateful beyond words. Thank you to the sponsors, uh, not just the ones of this uh, for this episode, Babel and Text Expander, but for every sponsor who has supported the show over the last years. You helped me be able to provide this free content to the productive woman community without you it would be hard if not impossible to do this so thank you for that thank you all um thank you for, I, I don't know what else to say but thank you thanks for sticking with me and that is it for this episode of the productive woman as always i am so grateful to you for spending this time with me i hope you felt like it was worthwhile I look forward to talking with you again very soon and for not so much time next time. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter. The Productive Woman is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to help you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx.